0: The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill. Read by Adrian Predsellus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill. CHAPTER Five Yes, but what will become of the beautiful? said Denzil Cantercott. Hang the beautiful! said Peter Crowl, as if he were on the committee of the Academy. Give me the true! Denzil did nothing of the sort. He didn't happen to have it about him. Denzil Cantercott stood smoking a cigarette in his landlord's shop, and imparting an air of distinction and an agreeable aroma to the close, leathery atmosphere. Crowell cobbled away, talking to his tenant without raising his eyes. He was a small, big-headed, sallow, sad-eyed man, with a greasy apron. Denzil was wearing a heavy overcoat with a fur collar. He was never seen without it in public during the winter. In private he removed it and sat in his shirt-sleeves. Crowell was a thinker, or thought he was, which seems to involve original thinking anyway. His hair was thinning rapidly at the top, as if his brain was struggling to get as near as possible to the realities of things. He prided himself on having no fads. Few men are without some foible or hobby. felt almost lonely at times in his superiority. He was a vegetarian, a secularist, a Blue Ribbonite, a Republican and an anti-tobacconist. Meat was a fad, drink was a fad, religion was a fad, monarchy was a fad, tobacco was a fad. A plain man like me, Crowl used to say, can live without fads. A plain man was Crowl's catchword. When, of a Sunday morning, he stood on Mile End Waste, which was opposite his shop, and held forth to the crowds on the evils of kings, priests, and mutton-chops, the plain man turned up at intervals like the theme of a symphonic movement. "'I'm only a plain man, and I want to know,' was a phrase that sabred the spider-webs of logical refinement, and held them up scornfully on the point." When Crowell went for a little recreation in Victoria Park on Sunday afternoons, it was with this phrase that he invariably routed the supernaturalists. Crowell knew his Bible better than most ministers, and always carried a miniature printed copy in his pocket, dog-eared to mark contradictions in the text. The second chapter of Jeremiah says one thing, the first chapter of Corinthians says another. Two contradictory statements may both be true, but— I'm only a plain man, and I want to know. Crowl spent a large part of his time in setting the word against the word. Cockfighting affords its votaries no acuter pleasure than Crowell derived from setting two texts by the ears. Crowell had a metaphysical genius which sent his Sunday-morning disciples frantic with admiration, and struck the enemy dumb with dismay. He had discovered, for instance, that the deity could not move, owing to already filling up all space. He was also the first to invent, for the confusion of the clerical, the crucial case of a saint— dying at the Antipodes, contemporaneously with another in London. Both went skyward to Heaven, yet the two travelled in directly opposite directions. In all eternity they would never meet. Which, then, got to Heaven? Or was there no such place? I'm only a plain man, and I want to know. Preserve us our open spaces.' They exist to testify to the incurable interest of humanity in the unknown and the misunderstood. Even Arry is capable of five minutes' attention to speculative theology, if Ariet isn't in a hurry. Peter Crowl was not sorry to have a lodger like Denzil Cantercott, who, though a man of parts and thus worth powder and shot, was so hopelessly wrong on all subjects under the sun. In only one point did Peter Crowl agree with Denzil Cantercott. He admired Denzil Cantercott secretly. When he asked him for the true, which was about twice a day on the average, he didn't really expect to get it from him. He knew that Denzil was a poet. "'The beautiful,' he went on, "'is a thing that only appeals to men like you. The true is for all men.' The majority have the first claim, till you poets must stand aside. The true and the useful, that's what we want. The good of society is the only test of things. Everything stands or falls by the good of society." The good of society, echoed Denzil scornfully. What's the good of society? The individual is before all. The mass must be sacrificed to the great man, otherwise the great man will be sacrificed to the mass. Without great men there would be no art. Without art life would be a blank." "'Ah, but we should fill it up with bread and butter,' said Peter Crowell. "'Yes, it is bread and butter that kills the beautiful said Denzil Cantercott, bitterly. "'Many of us start by following the butterfly through the verdant meadows, but we turn aside—' "'To get the grub!' <laughs> chuckled Peter, cobbling away. "'Peter, if you make a jest of everything, I'll not waste my time on you.' Denzil's wild eyes flashed angrily. He shook his long hair. Life was very serious to him. He never wrote comic verse—intentionally. There are three reasons why men of genius have long hair. One is that they forget it is growing. The second is that they like it. The third is that it comes cheaper—they wear it long for the same reason they wear their hats long. Owing to this peculiarity of genius you may get quite a reputation for lack of tuppence. The economic reason did not apply to Denzel, who could always get credit with the profession on the strength of his appearance. Therefore, when street-arabs vocally commanded him to get his hair cut, they were doing no service to barbers. Why does all the world watch over barbers, and to conspire to promote their interests? Denzil would have told you it was not to serve the barbers, but to gratify the crowd's instinctive resentment of originality. In his palmy days Denzil had been an editor, but he no more thought of turning his scissors against himself than of swallowing his paste. The efficacy of hair was changed since the days of Samson otherwise denzil would have been a hercules instead of a long thin nervous man looking too brittle and delicate to be used even for a pipe cleaner the narrow oval of his face sloped to a pointed untrimmed beard his linen was reproachable his dingy boots were down at heel and his cocked hat was drab with dust such are the effects of a love for the beautiful Peter Crowell was impressed with Denzil's condemnation of flippancy, and he hastened to turn off the joke. "'I'm quite serious,' he said. "'Butterflies are no good to nothing or nobody. Caterpillars at least save the birds from starving.' "'Just like your view of things, Peter,' said Denzil. "'Good morning, madam.' This to Mrs Crowell, to whom he removed his hat with elaborate courtesy. Mrs. Crowl grunted, and looked at her husband with a note of interrogation in each eye. For some seconds Crowl stuck to his last, endeavouring not to see the question. He shifted uneasily on his stool. His wife coughed grimly. He looked up, saw her towering over him, and helplessly shook his head in a horizontal direction. It was wonderful how Mrs. Crowl towered over Mr. Crowell even when he stood up in his shoes. She measured half an inch less. It was quite an optical illusion. "'Mr. Crowl said Mrs. Crowl, "'then I'll tell him.' "'No, no, my dear, not yet,' faltered Peter, helplessly. "'Leave it to me. I've left it to you long enough. You'll never do nothing.' If it was a question of providing to a lot of chuckle-heads, that Jolly G and Genesis, or some other dead-and-gone scripture-folk, that don't concern no mortal soul used to contradict each other, your tongue would run thirteen to the dozen. But when it's a matter of taking the bread out of the mouths o' your own children, you ain't got no more to say for yourself than a lamp-post. Here's a man staying with you for weeks and weeks, eating and drinking the flesh off your bones without paying a fu- hush hush, mother, it's all right, said poor Crowl, red as fire. Denzil looked at her dreamily. Is it possible you're alluding to me, Mrs. Crowl? he said. Who then should I be alluding to, Mr. Cantercott? Here's seven weeks come and gone, and not a blessed apney have I, my dear Mrs. Crowl said Denzil, removing his cigarette from his mouth with a pained air. "'Why reproach me with your neglect?' "'My neglect? I like that!' "'I don't,' said Denzil more sharply. "'If you had sent me in the bill, you would have had the money long ago. How do you expect me to think of these details?' "'We ain't so grand down here. People pays their way. They don't get no bills.' said Mrs. Crowl, accentuating the word with infinite scorn. Peter hammered away at a nail, as though to drown his spouse's voice. "'It's three pounds, fourteen and eightpence, if you're so anxious to know,' Mrs. Crowl resumed. "'And there ain't a woman in the Mile End Road a done it cheaper, with bread at fourpence, three-farthing a quartern and landlords clambering for rent every Monday morning, almost afore the sun's up, and folks dragging and sliddering on till their shoes is only fit to throw after brides, and Christmas coming, and sevenpence a week for schooling!" Peter winced under the last item. He had felt it coming like Christmas. His wife and he parted company on the question of free education. Peter felt that, having brought nine children into the world, it was only fair that he should pay a penny a week for each of those old enough to bear educating. His better half argued that, having so many children, they ought in reason to be exempted. Only people who had few children could spare the penny. But the one point on which the cobbler specific of the Mile End Road got his way was this of the fees— it was a question of conscience, and Mrs. Crowl had never made application for their remission, though she often slapped her children in vexation instead. They were used to slapping, and when nobody else slapped them, they slapped one another. They were bright, ill-mannered brats, who pestered their parents and worried their teachers, and were as happy as the road was long. "'Oh, bother the school fees!' Peter retorted, vexed. Mr. Cantercott's not responsible for your children." "'I should hope not, indeed, Mr. Crowl. Mrs. Crowl said sternly. "'I'm ashamed of you.' And with that she flounced out of the shop into the back parlour. "'It's all right,' Peter called after her soothingly. "'The money'll be all right, mother. In lower circles it is customary to call your wife your mother. In somewhat superior circles it is the fashion to speak of her as the wife, as you speak of the Stock Exchange or the Thames, without claiming any particular property. Instinctively men are ashamed of being moral and domesticated. Denzil puffed his cigarette unembarrassed. Peter bent attentively over his work, making nervous stabs with his awl. There was a long silence an organ-grinder played a waltz outside unregarded and failing to annoy anybody moved on denzil lit another cigarette the dirty-faced clock on the wall chimed twelve what do you think said crowl of republics they are low denzil replied without a monarch there is no visible incarnation of authority "'What? Do you call Queen Victoria visible?' "'Peter, do you want to drive me from the house? Leave frivolousness to women whose minds are only large enough for domestic difficulties. Uh, "'Republics are low. Plato mercifully kept the poets out of his. "'Republics are not congenial soil for poetry.' "'What nonsense! If England dropped its fad of monarchy and became a republic to-morrow, do you mean to say that—'I mean to say there would be no poet-laureate to begin with?' "'Who's fibbing now, you or me, Cantercott?' "'But I don't care a buttonhook about poets,' present company always excepted. "'I'm only a plain man, and I want to know, where's the sense of giving any one personal authority over everybody else?' "'Ah, oh, that's what Tom Mortlake used to say. Wait till you're in power, Peter, with trade-union money to control, and working-men bustling to give you flying angels, and to carry you aloft like a banner, huzzaring. "'Ah, oh, that's because he's head and shoulders above em already,' said Crowl, with a flash in his sad grey eyes. "'Still, it don't prove that I'd talk any different, and I don't think you're quite wrong about his being spoilt. Tom's a fine fellow, a man every inch of him, and that's a good many. I don't deny he has his weaknesses, and there was a time when he stood in this very shop and denounced that poor dead Constant.' "'Crowl,' he said, "'that man'll do mischief. I don't like these kid-glove philanthropists mixing themselves up in practical labour disputes they don't understand.' Denzil whistled involuntarily. "'It was a piece of news.' "'I dare say,' continued Crowl, "'he's a bit jealous of anybody's interference with his influence.' but in this case the jealousy did wear off you see for the poor feller, and he got quite pals as everybody knows tom's not the man to hug a prejudice however all that don't prove nothing against republics look at the czar and the jews now i'm only a plain man and i wouldn't live in russia not for-not for all the leather in it an englishman taxed as he is to keep up his fad of monarchy is at least a king in his own castle, whoever bosses it at Windsor. Excuse me a minute, the missus is calling. Excuse me a minute, I'm going, and I want to say before I go, I feel it only right, you should know at once, that after what has passed to-day, I can never be on the same footing here as in the, shall we say, pleasant days of yore oh no cantercott don't say that don't say that pleaded the little cobbler well shall i say unpleasant then no no cantercott don't misunderstand me mother has been very much put to it lately to rub along you see she has such a growing family it grows daily but never mind her you pay whenever you got the money denzil shook his head It cannot be! You know when I came here first I rented your top room and boarded myself. Then I learned to know you. We talked together of the beautiful and the useful. I found you had no soul, but you were honest, and I liked you. I went so far as to take my meals with your family. I made myself at home in your back parlour. But the vase has been shattered. I do not refer to that on the mantelpiece, and though the scent of the roses may cling to it still, it can be pieced together—nevermore!" He shook his hair sadly, and shambled out of the shop. Crowl would have gone after him, but Mrs Crowl was still calling, and ladies must have the precedence in all polite societies. Cantercott went straight, or as straight as his loose gait permitted. Two Forty-six Glover Street, and knocked at the door. Grodman's factotum opened it. She was a pock-marked person, with a brick-dust complexion and a coquettish manner. "'Oh, here we are again,' she said vivaciously. "'Don't talk like a clown,' Cantercott snapped. "'Is Mr. Grodman in?' "'No, you've put him out,' growled the gentleman himself. Suddenly appearing in his slippers, Come in. What the devil have you been doing with yourself since the inquest? Drinking again? I've sworn off. Haven't touched a drop since The murder, eh? said Denzil Cantercott, startled. What do you mean? What I say, since December 4, I reckon everything from that murder now, as they reckon longitude from Greenwich. Ew said Denzil Cantercott. "'Let me see. Nearly a fortnight. What a long time to keep away from drink. And me!' "'I don't know which is worse,' said Denzil, irritated. "'You both steal away my brains.' "'Indeed!' said Grudman, with an amused smile. "'Well, it's only petty pilfering, after all. What's put salt on your wounds?' the twenty-fourth edition of my book.' "'Whose book?' "'Well, your book. You must be making piles of money out of criminals I have caught.' "'Criminals I have caught?' corrected Grodman. "'My dear Denzil, how often am I to point out that I went through the experiences that made the backbone of my book, not you?' "'In each case, "'I cooked the criminal's goose. Any journalist could have supplied the dressing.' "'The contrary. The journeymen of journalism would all have left the truth naked. You yourself could have done that, for there is no man to beat you at cold, lucid, scientific statements. But I idealized the bare facts, and lifted them into the realm of poetry and literature.' The twenty-fourth edition of the book attests my success. "'Rot! The twenty-fourth edition was all owing to the murder. Did you know that?' "'You take one up so sharply, Mr. Grodman,' said Denzil, changing his tone. "'Nah, I've retired,' laughed Grodman. Denzil did not reprove the ex-detective's flippancy. He even laughed a little. "'Well!' Give me another fiver, and I'll cry quits. I'm in debt.' "'Not a penny! Why haven't you been to see me since the murder? I had to write that letter to the pell Press myself. You might have earned a crown.' "'I've had a uh, writer's cramp, and couldn't do your last job. I was coming to tell you on the morning of the—' "'Murder!' So you said at the inquest. "'It's true.' Of course! Weren't you on your oath? It was very zealous of you to get up so early to tell me. In which hand did you have this cramp? Why, in the uh, right, of course. And you couldn't write with your left? I don't think I could even hold a pen. Or any other instrument, mayhap. What had you been doing to bring it on? Writing too much! "'That's the only possible cause.' "'Oh, I didn't know. "'Write him what?' Denzil hesitated. "'An epic poem!' "'No wonder you're in debt. "'Will a sovereign get you out of it?' "'No, it wouldn't be the least use to me.' "'Here it is, then.' Denzil took the coin and his hat. "'Aren't you going to earn it, you beggar?' "'Sit down and write something for me.' Denzel got pen and paper and took his place. "'What do you want me to write?' "'Your epic poem.' Denzel started and flushed. But he set to work. Grodman leaned back in his armchair and laughed, studying the poet's grave face. Denzel wrote three lines and paused. "'Can't remember any more. Well, read me the start.' Denzel read. Of man's first disobedience, and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose morbid taste brought death into the world— Oh, Don, cried Grodman, what morbid subjects you choose to be sure! Morbid? Why, Milton chose the same subject. Blow, Milton! Take yourself off, you and your epics! Denzil went. The pock person opened the street door for him. "'When am I going to have that new dress, dear?' she whispered coquettishly. "'I have no money, Jane,' he said shortly. "'You have a sovereign?' Denzil gave her the sovereign, and slammed the door viciously. Grodman overheard their whispers, and laughed silently. His hearing was acute. Jane had first introduced Denzil to his acquaintance about two years ago, when he spoke of getting an amanuensis, and the poet had been doing odd jobs for him ever since. Grodman argued that Jane had her reasons. Without knowing them, he got a hold over both. There was no one he felt he could not get a hold over. All men and women have something to conceal, and you only have to pretend to know what it is. Thus Grodman, who was nothing if not scientific. Denzel Cantercott shambled home thoughtfully, and abstractly took his place at the Crowl dinner table End of CHAPTER five